We are pleased to bring you the question and answer session with the Honorable Mary Robinson, former President of Ireland and UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, that followed her keynote address at the 2006 Rule of Law Symposium. I am the UN Special Rapporteur on Trafficking in Persons. My name is Sigma Huda. I'm from Bangladesh. You mentioned in your speech that uh, you will be visiting South Asia. So I would like uh, to understand as to what are the questions that you will be asking the South Asians or what arenas will you be uh, looking at when you visit South Asia and when. Thank you for the question, and I'm very pleased to know that you're here. Uh, we will be in a number of countries. Um, in, um, I think uh, currently we're planning to be based in Sri Lanka for a number of Afri um, uh, Asian countries. We're also going to have a hearing in Pakistan. I have to add, I don't take part in all of these hearings, so the ones that are on my schedule, I'm, I'm, I'm clearer about the dates of them. But we do have a consistent approach, and it is very much focusing on the threats of acts of terrorism to rule of law. We're not as comprehensive as you are, rightly, in this seminar on international rule of law. We, we keep our focus on the kind of issues that I spoke about in my speech. And um, the idea is to also be encouraging of those who give evidence to us. Um, I think because I was um, conscious that I had to focus on our uh, response to what we heard, that I should equally say we were very impressed by those we heard, including your very distinguished president, Karen Mathis, who gave evidence before us on behalf of the American Bar Association. We also had the, um, uh, the Bar of the City of New York. We had wonderful individual lawyers telling us about their cases, telling us about their difficulty in being in contact with their clients. And that has also been a pattern in the, the countries where we've had these hearings. I mentioned the East Africa um, Law Association. So we hope that part of what we're doing, actually, is recognizing the value of the checks and balances of the civil society, of the lawyers, of the judges, and that we're taking stock and we will be reporting on, in a thematic way at the end from what we've learned. So um, in South Asia, just to answer your question as the UN uh, Special Rapporteur on Trafficking, we won't actually be focusing on that issue, though it may come up in some of the presentations to us. Um, it, is, it is a narrower focus on, on, on acts of terrorism. Please. Uh, my name is Sheila Murphy, and, and, we, and when we invited you with, uh, on behalf of the National Association of Women Judges to come here in 1991, you said to us to give voice to the voiceless. Today you speak of the erosion of democratic principles and the rule of law in our country. Tell us, as, tell us judges, tell us lawyers what to do, what to do with our passion. Thank you, Sheila. Um, I remember that event. In fact, there are some other members of the Association of Women Judges, and we were talking about it. But what I vividly remember, and dined out from years afterwards on, I had arrived from Ireland as president of Ireland. Our flight was a little bit delayed. We just got here to Chicago to a big ballroom where people were waiting for me to make the after-dinner speech. And I was sort of thanked for coming and sort of hustled up the stairs, the waiting, the waiting, and went into this room, and there was suddenly music. So I stopped and solemnly did this. And they said, no, no, it's just March on music, the Irish national anthem. <laughs> so uh, that became quite an issue. And, and the following morning at breakfast, I swear they played the Irish national anthem at least twice. But um, to answer your question, actually, uh, I think judges need to do what they are doing and getting criticized for doing. I live in New York now, and I'm a bit taken aback at the severity of the critique of judges 
who are doing a good job as judges independently. And uh, well, that's one of the things I'm saying, that certainly the bar associations, your collective voice needs now to be more supportive. This is a tough time for individual judges when they are faced with difficult cases and assert their proper independence and their concern about issues of rule of law. Um, we heard some wonderful um, testimony from individual lawyers, and we learned that law firms in this country are working pro bono and are prepared to do the work pro bono for those who are detained, for those who are challenging aspects of the law, and that that wasn't the case just after 9-11. So one of the things I would say, because this is both American Bar Association and International Bar Association, I've always believed when I was critiquing during that first year as UN High Commissioner what was happening in the United States, that the United States has the strengths of a very strong democracy at the end of the day, <clears throat> and that those checks and balances would kick in, if you like, and they are. There's no doubt in my mind, and we're even seeing it in what's happening in Congress today. My worry, and that's why these hearings of the panel, I think, are useful, is that in other countries, there's a tendency to say that the standards have changed. I found that during my final year as um, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. I would say to the minister in Egypt or in Pakistan or in Morocco, it doesn't matter, a range of uh, India when I was there, and I'm happy that India has, in fact, made some good changes recently, but they were bringing in broader security law, cramping down on political opposition, on freedom of the press, etc. And I would point out that this was not in conformity with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, etc., that these countries would have ratified. And they would say, oh, but the standards have changed. And I would draw myself up and say, oh, no, they haven't. I'm the High Commissioner, and they have not changed. And they would just say, look at the United States. It was so compelling. It was so devastating. So the more the United States reasserts those standards, the more it will also hopefully have a knock-on effect. So... Um, what I would say is each of us must dig deep and see what we can do more. This is not a time to just simply be a lawyer and say these things are important and do nothing. This is a time, as we've heard, genuinely to be passionate because things are happening on our watch, which I would never have believed five years ago would happen. And when they happen in this country, it's even more devastating. So all over the world, we need to be passionate and alert. And I see... Um, you're, you're, you're correcting the gender balance in the questioners, yes. <laughs> My name is Barbara Wilkins. I'm a publications officer in the National Session of the International Lives. I wonder what advice you might have for the citizens and lawyers of the country uh, when they recently learned that their government has admitted that they have a secret process around the world. That's a very interesting question because, of course, nobody was surprised, um, but it made a difference that it was admitted. But then there was the kind of, again, a sort of shock. Admitted, but it wasn't said, and we're closing them now. We're very sorry. This was a terrible thing to do. Far from it. They have admitted that they have secret places, uh, have had secret places of detention, and that they retain the right to continue to do it. We asked under what law, what authority, and the question was never answered. Um, so it actually is even more shocking to admit that you have secret places of detention outside the United States to hold detainees under whatever euphemism you want to call torture or cruel and, um, uh, and inhumane treatment, and that you reserve the right to continue to do that. Um, President Bush said that um, 14 detainees had been moved to Guantanamo and there was nobody on that day held in secret detention by the United States. Is that true today? 
we've no reason to believe it is or isn't um, because the policy of having secret places of detention apparently continues. I feel that that is an issue that the American Bar Association needs to really take up very seriously. It is, it's new and unprecedented that a democracy based on rule of law would be able to come out with that statement and, and, and that people are not absolutely shocked. So it's a time for passion, I think. Okay, thank you. Oh, sorry. Okay. Okay. Thank you for expressing those views. I think those views are very widely held, um, particularly in this country, and it's good that this is a symposium where there can be dialogue precisely on these issues. Um, just on the question of you know, needing to be able to use, um, I'll just call them cruel methods of interrogation, let's get away from euphemisms, um, uh, to get the evidence. Uh, all the experts tell us it's not reliable, and actually... It was somebody under cruel interrogation who said that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, was getting the nuclear weapons, etc. In other words, it has led to some terrible miscalculations. And so I think that that's something that has to be borne in mind. But um, I, I do believe that the viewpoint you've expressed um, is one that's quite widely held. And yet, if you look at the examples in the United Kingdom, which did have a bitter experience of the terrible terrorist attacks, attacks by the um, IRA and then um, the uh, splinter group that broke away from the IRA when the peace process started and so on. Um, the United Kingdom still maintains a rule of law approach, a criminal approach, and um, learned a lot from um, how to cope. And it was police surveillance and old-fashioned police tactics which apparently arrested the plan for the current um, uh, uh, possible attacks um, with some kind of um, gels or um, what I, I don't know, something's in bottles. Uh, what has me now getting all my toothpaste and makeup taken from me when I, when I travel? But, you know, that wasn't torture or, um, you know, falling below the standards. It was good old-fashioned surveillance, police work, 
um, uh, being able to apprehend before these acts took place. So that is, I, I, I presume, what we will be discussing. And I, I, I'm just glad that you felt comfortable about taking a different view from me, and we'll respect each other. Um, I think the last point here. Yeah. I have a question because maybe you're, you're aware of this, and, and I'm not because I don't have that much experience in this kind of organization. But um, isn't, shouldn't there be some form of international enforcement of rights um, in a way that uh, is similar to the International Criminal Court. I mean, we've got a, a civil court, but it's rarely used, and, and most countries opt out of, of obeying any of the rulings that it gives, including our country. And isn't that probably the start of, of imposing uh, or uh, having a rule of law, uh, something to to start with international disputes or cross-border disputes or um, civil war versus uh, invasion type of things. And if we can get that, maybe we can start, shouldn't it start at the top down? I know we're working from the bottom up, but, mm. and, and it's hard, but wouldn't that be maybe the first place to start? I think what I would say is it needs both. It needs both the standards at the international level and more effective enforcement of them, and it needs, in particular, um, important work at national, indeed subnational uh, level. Um, when I was serving for five years as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, I was supporting the various ways in which the UN human rights system tries to be effective. Um, we had the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, where Eleanor Roosevelt chaired the Commission on Human Rights, and um, with a number of eminent jurists from different parts of the world, um, uh, brought this forward. It was adopted in December 1948. And out of that, as you will know, there are the two covenants, the main human rights conventions and so on, which the vast majority of countries in the world have ratified. vast majority of countries have ratified. And that means they undertake legal obligations to report. And bringing this home to the United States, it's not... Uh, a very satisfactory process at the moment, particularly in a way in the relationship of the United States to this system. Um, I'll, I'll illustrate this by two hearings that took place recently under the obligations that the United States has accepted under international human rights law. The United States has ratified the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and there was a hearing, and the Human Rights Committee, which monitors implementation, had some very severe things to say of the kind that I've been saying here, about the United States in its July report. Um, did any newspaper in the United States carry that? Not that I'm aware of. Um, was there any stir in this country about the fact that uh, the International Human Rights Committee, very distinguished international jurists, um, were very critical of the United States' failure to uphold its own committed standards? It has not derogated. The United Kingdom has derogated in a certain regard. The, the United States has simply ignored its commitments under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And um, quite recently, there was, um, over the summer as well, there was a hearing of another committee under the UN Convention Against Torture. And when I was serving as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, the United States was the great ally of the UN Convention Against Torture. The United States is by far the biggest contributor to the United Nations Fund for Torture Victims. You have the greatest expertise on how to deal with the trauma of tor torture victims. And yet, now you are threatening a system that has been so valuable. I mean, not you here in this room, obviously, but, but the administration um, of this country. And that came up 
at a hearing of the CAT, the Committee Against Torture. And I know, because we met in the State Department, the main person, Mr. Bellinger, um, who defended the United States. And he said to me, knowing that I had been High Commissioner, he said, we weren't listened to. And I said, oh, yes, you were. You were methodically listened to, but you couldn't answer in a legally satisfactory way the issues that were raised. So the committee had to uh, be critical, as they were, because the committee isn't interested in doing down the United States, far from it. In fact, would love not to have to be critical of one of the more powerful countries, but it is responsible for the international standards. So we have a system. It's not as effective as it should be or as um, compelling, and it is not compelling in particular if the um, output of these committees gets buried and doesn't get covered here in the United States, and maybe the bar associations and your journals and that can give more exposure to international criticism of performance in relevant areas. I was told I could, yeah, all right, one last question, <laughs> okay. I'll make, it, I'll make it brief. I'm uh, Fiona Wolfe, I'm president of the Law Society of England and Wales. I'm sure that at the end of this conference we will be energized and passionate and the challenge is what do we do next? How do we get the attention of government and, and, and indeed the public um, on, on the, the issues surrounding the rule of law? I have good relations with government and I can use those, but what we'd really like to do is to capture the hearts and minds of the public. The media are not about to carry good news stories about lawyers and the rule of law. And I wondered if you had um, any thoughts and guidance about how we essentially get the attention of governments um, and, and the media and anybody else so that we can actually build uh, the sort of culture uh, that we want to see that uh, respects the rule of mm. law. Well, thank you. Again, it's nice to hear another woman president. I mean, things are improving very fast. But um, uh, I, I think that that's why, as I said at the beginning, it's important that this symposium is committing to a plan of action. It's building on a meeting in 2005, and I think you're going to carry forward this issue. And so in the context of a plan of action, I really would encourage that um, we try to think how to respond to that question. How, in fact, does the collective voice of the IBA and ABA get heard more? How do individual bar associations become more vocal? When judges are criticized, do the bar associations come out and explain why it's not appropriate uh, to, to, to criticize individual judges in a vindictive, personalized way sometimes? Um, uh, can individual cases be used as examples? Because that's why I say that we were taken aback by the testimony. We thought we knew, but when we heard individual lawyers talk about the real difficulties they'd had, the terrible conditions of their clients, the conditions of being, trying to take instruction from a client who shackled to the floor, arms and legs, you know, all of these things, um, uh, I think it's time for more of the professions and leaders of the profession who aren't normally seen as being um, concerned or not um, dealing with criminal law cases to actually learn from their colleagues, learn from those in their firms who are doing pro bono work and make it an issue. Um, in other words, we are in a situation where we have to have a movement that strongly reasserts and at the same time, to take up the question from the person who differs um, from this approach, we do have to recognize that special measures need to be taken. And the human rights instruments, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, makes it clear that in times of emergency or grave threat, measures can be taken. 
the point we have to say is they must conform to the principles of rule of law, and we must be more vocal and um, more um, uh, prepared to do that. I do accept that um, the media, for various reasons, isn't interested in the kind of nitty-gritty of what rule of law really signifies, and you have to work very hard to get this point across. Indeed, um, our panel um, had to work very hard to get any publicity for what we were doing, um, which was striking, because after all, we were here at a very uh, interesting time. I think the media more want to paint the bad then reflect on how to reassert um, the standards. But that's our challenge, and I think it has to be done in the context of a plan of action that's shared by the two major bar associations in the world, groupings of associations, and then taken on strongly by national bar associations. Because I go back to the hearing in Kenya. It really resonated that the East Africa Law Society was so strong and so, and its different chapters um, were able to be quite vocal in, in, in those countries. So um, I think there is the power in the bar associations to make a difference, and with power, as we know, comes the responsibility that we're going to be considering at this symposium. So thank you both for listening and for your questions, and I appreciate it very much your response. Thank you.